This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Dementia is not any one particular condition. Dementia is caused by many different brain diseases. These brain diseases cause problems with memory, orientation, ability to think ahead, planning and organisation, language, behaviour and personality change. The most common cause of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, but there are many other different brain diseases that can cause dementia. About 60% of all forms of dementia are due to Alzheimer's disease. Sometimes people misconstrue normal ageing and dementia. In dementia, where people have real problems with their memory, they have difficulty remembering things that they have to do that day, the next day, they miss appointments. They also forget, on a very regular basis, events that happen in the recent past, and that interferes with their day-to-day functioning. That's the difference between the memory loss, for example, associated with Alzheimer's disease, and the changes that can occur with normal ageing. My name is Brian Lawler, I'm Conley Norman, Professor of Old Age Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin, and I also direct the Memory Clinic at St James's Hospital. First of all, thanks to Professor Brian Lawler for his clear explanation of the distinction between dementia and normal ageing. As Professor Lawler just told us, Alzheimer's disease is responsible for the majority of the cases of dementia and it has been described as the epidemic of the 21st century. It is all around us, but still our knowledge of it is very limited. In this programme, we are going to give a voice to those at the forefront of the battle against the disease. People living with it and the families of some of those diagnosed will tell their stories. We will also have the opportunity to hear from those trying to understand the illness, such as Professor Brian Lawler, a world-leading expert in dementia, and Dr Michelle Kelly, a dementia specialist, who helps people with dementia live as independently as possible. The programme will bring the listeners to the Alzheimer's Café in Glasnevin, a safe and relaxed place where people with dementia, their families and health and social care professionals can come together to talk, share and learn. The Alzheimer's Café evenings are free and anyone affected by dementia is welcome. The listeners will notice that we have not identified the contributors affected by dementia or the families. This is a conscious decision to allow the listeners to imagine that this could be any one of them or anybody close to them. So let's go for a coffee. Hi. Hello there, thanks for coming back on the lower. I'm delighted to come back. You made it. You mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Hello. Hi. Are you Anybody can come a coffee? Memory was always a problem for me in my my whole life. And my mother, when I'd come home from visiting the relatives, she'd end up saying, but there's no use asking you anything. You never have any news to bring home. 
Of course, I would have been there, enjoying it all, but it just didn't stay. People who have neurodegeneration, this is something that gets progressively worse over time, and that's the crucial distinction. If it is, then that's something that needs to be looked into. If it's something that you always had an issue with, and perhaps just, just a little bit more difficulties with the time it takes you to retrieve the name, but you still get the name eventually, then it's probably not an issue. I've been in academic work and I was in a study group at one stage. It's about four years ago now and the others in the group were all female. And I said I'd make a contribution. I had it all very prepared. I was quite sure going into the meeting that I had all my stuff done. And we continued on our talking and then they says, Des, what have you got to say? And I started and I got stuck straight away. I had notes. I couldn't order them in the proper order. I was unable to focus on the issue. I lectured over in the Milltown Park in philosophy for years, never had any trouble there. But this day, everything just went blank, and I knew I'd never experienced anything like this before. So the group just felt, well, oh, this is the typical man. He thinks he knows it all. He comes in and we know twice as much as he does. He's all confused and all up in the air. It was a very tough occasion, very sad. And I don't blame them. I can see exactly where they were coming from. I might have had the same reactions myself. I just was utterly humiliated. I couldn't understand what had happened. I'm afraid I never came back to that group again. I couldn't face it. It didn't lead me to say I need to go to the doctor. And I cannot trace where, sometime within the next couple of years, I began to say, hmm, there is something wrong with my memory. And I went down to my local GP and had a chat with him, and he did a few little tests. And then he sent me down to Vincent's Hospital. So you look at your baseline and deciding, is there a change and is it interfering with your quality of life and functioning? That's when you go to see the doctor for an assessment. Memory clinic is where we assess people who have memory complaints. So they can be of any age, usually over the age of 45 to 50. And they would probably have seen their own primary care physician who feels that they need further assessment, so they have to go to a specialist. To the ordinary lay person, in terms of the, the general areas that are affected, like memory orientation, planning ahead, language, personality change, those areas are affected in all forms of dementia, but they're affected to a greater or lesser extent or a different pattern. So when we see the person who is complaining of memory difficulty, we usually ask to see that person with a family member if at all possible because we need to get information from the person themselves, but also we need to get a collateral source and that's very, very helpful. So we would generally see the person, talk to the person, get a sense of where they're coming from, what their problems are, what the issues are, get some background information from the family member. The person with the memory complaints would have a physical examination, usually a neurological examination. We would also check routine blood tests. We, we call this a dementia screen because sometimes people will have memory complaints and they could have a vitamin deficiency or have an underactive thyroid as a potential cause. So it's important to exclude this. We also arrange for a scan because we want to look at the structure of the brain because 
sometimes there can be something in the brain. You could have a small stroke or a bleed, so it's important to exclude that. And the neuroimaging can be helpful in that regard. So we'll often make a diagnosis of neurodegenerative cause, but sometimes we don't. About three years ago, I became a patient of, maybe it's four years now, a patient of um, the old age psychiatry department in St. Vincent's Hospital. And I've been regularly going down there since. Well, then they did a brain scan. Uh, they found that there was blockages in the, my brain area. And that, uh, as the doctor explained it to me, was that while the connections between the front and the back, where the storage of memory goes, were being um, blocked with, I don't know, some kind of coating, so that the messages were lost before they got stored, and I couldn't retrieve them anymore. Amyloid is a toxic protein that's deposited in the brain. So in people who develop Alzheimer's disease, yeah, amyloid is produced, but there is mismetabolism or abnormal metabolism of this amyloid in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. So what happens is that it's not broken down correctly and it then tends to stick together with these amyloid plaques and is not cleared out. It's outside the cells, but it's actually interfering with the connections. My dad, just before he was 65, he had a stroke. And once he got over the stroke, he got himself back on his feet fairly quickly. And he was going to finish out his walk, you know, he was walking at the time. It became quickly apparent that he was having problems in walk with remembering stuff. So he was brought to the doctors, he was tested, and he was diagnosed then with vascular dementia. Up until the stroke, there didn't appear to be any problems at all. It just became very apparent after the stroke. It was very noticeable before and after the stroke. Whether they're related, I don't know but it definitely became more apparent. Many people who develop a stroke, following the stroke, will have what's called post-stroke cognitive impairment, or they may develop dementia within the two years following a stroke. Now, not everybody who has a stroke will develop significant cognitive impairment or dementia, but it is not uncommon for people to develop dementia following a stroke. And what's happening here is that the stroke is affecting different brain areas and up until the time the person had a stroke they were able to compensate they were functioning independently but then when they have a stroke their level of function is compromised in some occasions when people develop dementia following a stroke it's not just due to the stroke it's because the threshold is lowered and then the underlying Alzheimer pathology comes into play and there is clinical expression of the Alzheimer's disease which is uncovered by the stroke. So the person has two different causes of their dementia or their cognitive or memory complaints. The vascular or blood vessel disease due to the stroke and the Alzheimer pathology. My grandfather, my mother's father, he was the grandfather I was closest to and we would have spent a lot of time in my grandparents' house growing up. And then when I was in my, I think, mid-twenties, he suddenly began to not come back on time for things, forget things. Now, he wasn't the most engaged man. He was quite traditional in that he sat in the chair and read the paper and demanded cups of tea be brought to him and listened to his sport on the radio. 
so he wouldn't have been very active and hands-on. So it took a little while to notice some of the changes, like what we had originally put down to him just, you know, going off for a few pints and not telling anyone. We suddenly realised there was no that he was missing for periods of time and that we noticed he wasn't following conversations and not remembering key things. So it was quite slow, probably been progressing for at least a year, if not longer, before we actually even tentatively started to name it. And he was relatively young. So even when we had started to say the word dementia, which 25 years ago was a scary word to say, it was a time when people still talked about cancer as the big C. So people weren't quite as open about talking about illnesses as we are now. And when my mother would start to say it and suggest it, people would say, oh no, he's just tired, or oh no, he's just getting a bit forgetful. It happens to us all with age. My mother wanted to get my grandfather tested. My mother wanted to be quite proactive because that's the type of person she was. Other people thought she was overreacting. She was reading too much into it. It wasn't that bad. He himself would entertain nothing. But this was a man who wouldn't have gone to a doctor with a broken leg. So he definitely wasn't going to go to a doctor if it was something that you were suggesting a frailty on his part or some sort of incapacity on his part. Sometimes the person can be in denial and this is a defence mechanism. It protects them from the distress and upset of actually accepting that there is an issue. And we see denial quite a lot, not just in the person, but sometimes in family members. And I think you have to be very careful how you deal with that. Particularly if there's a family history, the person's greatest fear may well be the diagnosis of dementia. That's one issue. The other issue is a very fancy term called anosognosia, which means lack of awareness. And this lack of awareness actually is due to the brain changes. That does cause difficulties in terms of trying to explain to the person you know, what's going on and also trying to initiate a course of treatment or explain to them why they might need to have their driving assessed or perhaps why they should assign an enduring power of attorney when they say well there's nothing wrong with my memory you know and we're saying well actually the testing does show this and sometimes when they come in and say there's nothing wrong but then when you go through the testing and I think they can say ah now I'm seeing that there is a problem when they kind of come around to the accepting that there is a problem or an awareness that there is a problem it's often easier for the family member and them to talk about this and to actually uh, formulate a plan. So the actual memory clinic assessment process and the feedback can be helpful in that regard. But for some patients, for in some individuals, yes, it is part of the illness. What it took was, my grandfather was diabetic and he didn't always manage his diabetes. And we went through quite an acute stage where his diabetes really got out of control. Um, and then it was very marked and very noticeable. So that was sort of the extreme or a, a crisis, if you want, that made them seek medical attention and a medical opinion on what was happening. Many people are not aware when they have diabetes that there is an increased risk of dementia or cognitive complaints. Now they're very aware that they could lose their vision or their kidneys could be affected or their heart could be affected or that they could get peripheral vascular disease and gangrene. People are very aware that the eyes can be affected, but they're not aware that they could develop cognitive or memory difficulties. And, and if you think about it, if you develop 
a memory complaint and you've got diabetes and you have to remember to take your tablets or take your insulin and you can't remember to do that. So it's a really important area and we feel that we need to try and increase the level of professional but also awareness among the general public about the brain health complications of type 2 diabetes because we do think that if diabetes is tackled early and treated well and monitored carefully, you may be able to decrease the risk of developing dementia down the road. We would get a call from my grandmother to say he went down to get the local paper and something like two hours later there was no sign of him. And I got in the car with my mother and we drove over and we literally drove around for hours looking for him till we found him. And the first time that happened my mother was distraught. It, everyone tried to brush it off as, oh, he must have run into somebody, he must have been talking, he must have been chatting. But after it had happened a second time, and it was quite clear, particularly when we found him the second time, that he didn't know where he was and he was distressed about being lost and that it wasn't a one-off and he hadn't got chatting to somebody or snuck off for a pint or snuck off to place a bet that he had been lost and didn't know his way home. Then people began to take it very seriously and then we got medical assessments and as part of doing that they did his bloods and as part of doing that they realised that his sugars were completely out of control. Oftentimes, you know, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, for example, can be distressing or upsetting. It does give clarity around what's causing the difficulties of the problem for both the person but also for family members. Uh, when I was, got the diagnosis and I says, what do I do with this? Do I keep it to myself or do I share it with people and just come up front? Uh, I decided it's going to be obvious to everyone that there's something wrong. It'll cause some confusion. It'll make them awkward with me. So I says, as soon as anything comes up, I say, oh yeah, that's, I'm afraid I've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and this is one of its consequences. So I've adopted a policy of being you know, quite frank about it and say, but also say, it's not the end of life, you know. How my dad took the news, it's hard to say. He was pretty quiet about it. It was a, an obvious frustration with him when he was forgetting things. Confusion, probably a bit of fear as well. Uh, that manifested itself in anger mostly directed at my mum because she was living with him. You know, she was with him 24-7. But after a while, as the illness took hold, he became more calm, more relaxed, maybe the word submissive. My dad is losing his memories. I've completely lost my independence. The impact that it has on you, on, on you personally, on your social life, for example, it's life-changing. That's the only way to describe it. When you come home from work and you are sitting in the house from, say, half five in the evening until nine o'clock the next morning, you begin to feel trapped. With my aunt now, she's taken a lot of the pressure off me. She's given me back some of my liberty, some of my freedom. I used to say that when you remove choice from a situation, life gets easier. When you have no choice, you have to manage when my dad was discharged from the vascular clinic, the blockage had gone from 70 to 90. They said there was nothing more they could do, that the medication wasn't slowing it down, and the best thing we could do was bring him home, keep him safe, keep him warm, and be aware now that he's more liable or susceptible to having strokes or mini-strokes. So 
you could sit there all the time watching for a stroke and it would drive you mad and you're trying to what way will I react if this happens and what's the best thing to do is just deal with it as it comes don't dwell on it don't focus on it you have to keep going keep doing your normal things but just be prepared when anything like that comes into a household it does become the center of the household I think that's probably true for if you think of any kind of a serious chronic illness or a serious disability and it's all about trying to manage using effective coping strategies. Social support is hugely important but also asking for help is something that people shouldn't feel ashamed to do. They should be completely accepting that look this is an unusual situation, not everybody is in the situation that we're in this is going to be something that is going to impact the family. You know, I think there's probably a journey to acceptance that people have to go through as well that, that will be very difficult. But asking for help is very, very important. And being aware of the services that are in your area. So if there is an Alzheimer cafe in your area, maybe go along or get in touch and then you might find out about other services that may be in the area. So being aware of the help that is available to you and taking advantage of that is very helpful for in terms of coping. We tried to get more support in from my grandmother. We tried to have that there would somebody would call in once a day. We tried to have people who would come in to keep my grandfather company. Because, I mean, he would get up to go out. My grandmother would want to stop him because she'd be fearful about the wandering. But she wasn't going to stop. You know, ex-rugby playing, quite powerful, they built, even in his old age man. And then my grandmother would fret. People would think she was overreacting. And if he wasn't back in an hour, then we would have to go out and go looking for him. And yet sometimes he would go out for the hour and come back. But it became more and more difficult. And you could see the strain on my grandmother that she was finding it harder and harder to deal with. And... They stopped socialising. Um, you could just see the impact that it was having on their life. It was a huge strain that my grandmother was under. I think we could see that her life had got smaller because she was trying to manage this. He had always had his own interests and she had had her interests. And now she was trying to manage him. She was trying to keep him at home and safe. And that created a lot of tension. It created a lot of stress. When the person loses confidence, and they're aware of their difficulties with their memory or with their language, begin to withdraw socially or they can become more depressed or anxious. So there can be a withdrawal and that's one pattern in terms of communication stops because the person stops going out, stops mixing because they've lost confidence and they, they're embarrassed. The other situation is, particularly if the frontal lobe is involved, you can have either apathy or withdrawal, but you can also get this disinhibition where the filters go and they may become overly familiar or disinhibited and it can be embarrassing for family members. And this is a brain illness and again, because they're disinhibited, they might use expletives or language that they would never have used. And it's difficult at home, but it's also then difficult for that person in a social situation. So a person whose dementia affects them that way, it's even harder to have them go to daycare or respite care because of the disinhibiting behaviour. So that can be more stressful for the family and also for the patient in terms of not being able to access the same level of supports. So yes, it can be particularly troubling and difficult. I think it is about identifying the place that the person feels comfortable with. 
There are some services that are fantastic, so there might be you know, a respite or a daycare service, but there's no point in trying to force an individual to engage in a social club within a daycare centre if it's a thing that they just are, do not want to do that. So you want to make the social interactions beneficial in that they're enjoyable and also that you know everybody feels comfortable, the person doesn't feel like they shouldn't be there. So the way of getting around some of the difficulties that people experience when they have dementia and the filter goes and you know those social interactions can get difficult is just about finding the place that you fit in with and yeah it probably is going to be difficult. Places like the Alzheimer Cafe are perfect for that because everybody there is aware of the situation, is very accepting of it. You know somebody can have a moment or somebody can start to complain about something or something might not be right but nobody minds that's not something that's going to be a problem in that kind of setting. When it comes to social interaction unless you understand the illness you don't know how to act. The whole Alzheimer's Cafe experience was amazing from start to finish. It helped me through the whole process just listening to people, talking to people who were in a similar situation as myself. I was slightly unusual in that most of the people I were talking to were spouses. I was a sibling. My mum had been his full-time carer up until she passed away. To be thrown in to this new world was a difficult process and Alzheimer's Cafe definitely got me through the process. At the start it was for the family so we could learn more about it. And you also learned from the experience of other people, the different processes, the different changes that's going to happen. So it was to inform ourselves more so, and inform me dad as well. But as it's gone on, it's more just to get him out of the house as a social interaction. Really, the, the most important is around psychosocial support. You know, the Alzheimer Cafe is a place that one of the, my main motivations for working with the working group and the committee in setting up the Alzheimer Cafe was that we really wanted to provide a place where people could come and access the psychosocial support that they require. It can be a really scary time for people post-diagnosis and I think at that point that immediate post-diagnosis there's probably a stage immediately post-diagnosis and then probably much later in the disease where people are left sort of not really knowing what to do. I think in the middle stage services actually have it quite well covered so we have the respite and the daycare centres and services people are maybe a bit more aware of what might be available but I think at the very beginning immediately post diagnosis I think people are probably left in this treatment gap where it's not that obvious what services are available. That's where I think the Alzheimer Cafe hopefully steps in and helps people from a social supports point of view but also lets people know what services are available around their areas. My grandfather sort of lived, he would say, under a microscope. He wasn't always an easy man and he wasn't a cooperative patient and he'd never really been good about his diet, keeping him to his diabetes care plan, but not fully. So the forgetfulness was still there, the wandering still happened, and then we began to see rages, like complete, frightening, terrifying for my grandmother rages, and she began to be quite fearful of it, and the strain began to show on her, and then on my mother, so that became an issue as well. Now, there were other days it was fine, other days you forget, and other days everybody went on about their business, but... Now, I could be misremembering, but from my memory, 
after the issue with his blood sugars were identified and after the attempt to get his diet under control was successful, it was like the dementia was never talked about again, even though it was clear to some of us that no, this is a bigger issue than the blood sugars, there's an underlying issue. Because even as I said, when the diet was under control, the confusion remained, the wandering remained, and these sudden rages came up. And I'm sure things have changed now, but we couldn't seem to get any further in terms of getting support, in terms of getting even advice and guidance on how to deal with it. It was almost like you were meant to just get on with it or you were meant to accept that this is a natural part of ageing. And it didn't feel natural. Like My grandparents were a very similar age and my grandmother wasn't experiencing any of these things. So for someone to tell us, oh, that's just what happens when you get old, I'd sort of go, well, no, it's not. I think then, as I said, 25 years ago, it just wasn't as well understood. I certainly hope that nowadays there's better information out there and better supports out there for families. Yeah, I think the services certainly have improved and there's a lot more awareness. So there's been some really, really effective campaigns by the likes of the Alzheimer's Society trying to improve awareness around dementia, trying to encourage people to seek early diagnosis. And I think even in the past 10 years, there has been a huge improvement in terms of services that are offered. But I do think that while resources have and services have improved, there's still a long way to go. And the government published the National Dementia Strategy in 2014, and we're, we're three years on from that, and we really haven't seen a huge change in terms of the priority areas that were identified. You know, one of the priority areas was around timely diagnosis and early intervention post-diagnosis, but we really haven't seen any huge input in terms of finances into improving early services or early interventions for people with dementia. So we've come a long way, but we still have quite a way to go. I was asked there recently by a friend of mine, Jesus, Pa, how do you do it? I just simply turned around and said, he's my dad and I owe it to him. And that was it. That's my attitude. My personality helps. I suppose life's experiences, the school of hard knocks, have given me certain coping mechanisms. I'm a very, what, realist? I deal with realities. My dad, my situation, is my reality. Like, it's very difficult sometimes to bring people into my world, into my reality, because of their apprehension. People like to gloss over a lot of the realities. Um, social interaction is hugely important, so I would really again stress that the importance of that because for a couple of reasons social interactions themselves have been shown to if people remain socially engaged or socially active that that has been shown or been proven to have beneficial effects on the brain but I completely understand what Pat was saying as well that there are difficulties with that it's not as easy as just saying just get out there and do it for the families and for the carers, I think it's important that they have an outlet that's not necessarily all about dementia, particularly, you know, if their loved one is engaged in a lot of activities or a lot of social engagement is dementia focused. It's just nice to have a bit of a break away from that. I think that would be just something that, if possible, that the family couldn't have social engagements outside of that. My response up to now has been very much to get on with life as much as I can. I'm still working. I find that um, because of the dementia, 
the work is much more tiring than it used to be. So I have to take rests, I have to choose what I'll do, what I won't do, and make sure that I get good breaks and holidays to get the mind back up to work and my whole energies back to work again. So it's limiting in that sense. I walk a lot, it gets the brain going again, you know. But I do go around with a little note in my pocket saying, I have dementia, you find me in distress, ring such and such a number. I haven't had to use it yet, but I still keep it in my pocket. Uh, yeah, and I think it's probably really good as well to think ahead. So there might be things that you think, well, you know, we're just not at that stage yet. We're, we don't need to, to think about that just yet. But it's always good to plan ahead and try and get things in place early. Particularly, you know, if, if you want to get somebody used to using a diary or any kinds of memory aids like that, Get them using them early and try and facilitate that habit as early as possible because it's more likely that they'll continue to use their diary or their memory aid for longer than when the memory does start to decline a little bit more. And yeah, anything that you can do to help the person feel that you're working with them. Somebody must have told us somewhere to reminisce that it was good. And I can remember us getting out old photographs one time and trying to talk about the old days when my grandfather played rugby, the old days where him and my grandmother were both very good dancers and the whole thing in Dublin of when people would go to dances a lot. But it was hard to engage him. It was hard to get any sort of spark back. It seemed to me that he just drew back into himself and that the efforts that we made to still engage or to draw him out sort of didn't come to much. He would forget names, but then he always forgot names. And then you'd get that, ah, sort of general greeting to people. And then you'd say, this is so-and-so, do you remember this? And you'd get, oh, yeah, I do, I do, I do. He had no idea who that was. But because he was that type of man anyway in the beginning, he wasn't like someone who'd say, oh yes, Sean, how are you, and how is this, and how is that going on? So, I mean, that's why at the very beginning it was harder to pinpoint, because he wasn't one who did a lot of that sort of engagement. So you, you noticed it, but you more noticed this sort of less and less engagement. There's research evidence that shows the importance of reminiscence kind of therapies. So, you know, you have a person engage in reminiscence and this can be very beneficial in terms of quality of life and cognitive health outcomes. But it's always about the way of approaching it. So exactly what you say, if you're doing some kind of cognitive stimulation or reminiscence with an individual, the wrong approach is to say, do you remember this? Because the person has a memory problem. So chances are, that's going to create some kind of anxiety or frustration around not being able to remember. A nice alternative approach would be, let's listen to this music. Do you like this song? You know, do you think that the person singing this song was an attractive person? Do you like the melody? Do you like the words of the song? They're the kinds of questions that you're just asking somebody's opinion. You're not putting them on the spot, like, do you remember who sang it or do you remember the name of it? Similarly, if you're doing some kind of reminiscence around, let's say, famous people's faces, you might show them a picture of, you know, the president, let's say. But you're not going to say who is this and what is their job. 
you will say something like, do you think this individual is a kind individual? What sort of a feeling do you have about this person? You know, do you think that they did a good job? And in that way, you're not putting the person on the spot and making them feel that they don't know. You're just giving them options and they're sharing opinions. So that's a much better approach to a reminiscence kind of, of therapy or intervention. I've noticed with a number of people at the Alzheimer's Cafe, when you say hello to them because you remember them from the previous one, and it, they have this smile that they give you. It's like, ah, oh, hell yeah. But it's, you know, they don't know who you are. You know, it's just because you smile to them and, you know, you seem to know them, so they smile. That's where my dad does a lot. He has facial recognition, but he can't put the name to the person. Family, very, very close family. Uh, me, self and me aunt, because I, I'm a constant in his life, He's starting to forget me sister's names. He can't differentiate between the two of them. Sometimes he forgets they're his daughters. It steps, it goes in steps. Sometimes the way he says hello to me when I come down the stairs in the morning, it's like, oh, hell yeah. Like I haven't seen you in years. Like The knowledge memory or the information from the distant past is often intact or much more intact for a long long period of time even though the short-term memory is affected and this is something that families would exploit uh, working with the individual because of their knowledge memory and memory for remote events and their emotional memory is intact for those events you can talk about these events and have good conversations about this and, and this can can really help with the communication this relates to the brain structures that are affected early on particularly in conditions like alzheimer's disease the condition begins in a particular part of the brain and the area that's affected early on is the hippocampus. These deal with short-term memory stores rather than the remote memory stores. But over time the remote memory stores, what we call this knowledge memory, is affected. And it may not be that evident to you or I talking to an individual that we don't know very well because they seem to be able to remember events. But if you know that person really, really well, you realize that their actually access to their knowledge memory, the remote memory, is actually not as accurate because that gets eroded over time as well. So there's what, what we call a temporal gradient. More recent is affected initially, but then it does work back over time. But remote memory, or what we call knowledge memory, is less affected by and large, and as I say, that's something that can be exploited therapeutically. I know I could well lose all recognition of people, and God, that makes me cry. Oh yeah, I mean, to meet my friends and not know who they are. People I've loved for a lifetime. That's what really, I know, the, the, the bare thought of it makes me cry. No, I find that very, very sad to think that. I mean, I, I, I find it sad for the people. I mean, I know when I meet people that I know and they can't recognise me, I just feel so sad for them. And kind of a real sense of loss myself, as if a friend has died or something like that, you know. So just the thought that. People who have that experience of me, I just feel hard oh, It's not matter what to do for people. Oh, and you know, I'm only looking at it from the sufferer's side. It is very cruel, as you know, for the family too, for the friends. 
it brings a big suffering everyone around. It's not a, it's not like breaking a leg. What I do, my coping mechanism, is I put up this emotional wall in front of me and I just deal with the day-to-day -day reality of what it is. I don't dwell on it. I notice every change and each time there's a new development you have to take this information, you have to process it and you have to learn to deal with it. My dad started to repeat himself a lot. You'd be having a talk with him and he'd start repeating himself a lot more often. And now the conversation is totally repetitious. It's the same conversation all the time, constantly. Even that now is starting to become very limited. I think as conditions like Alzheimer's disease progress, I mean, the forgetting can become very, very rapid. So there's a, a particular pattern, but the rate of progression, particularly like Alzheimer's disease, varies from person to person. We don't fully understand why this is the case, but there are a number of ideas around this. We do try to focus on trying to look at vascular risk factors. So we say we need to make sure we control your blood pressure, cholesterol, if you have diabetes. If you smoke, we try to get you to stop smoking. If you drink too much alcohol, we get you to cut back. If you're not taking enough exercise, we get you to try and exercise more and lose weight. We get you to try and be involved in cognitive and socially stimulating activities. So we try to amplify protective factors. Now we're not 100% sure that this will help, but we think it may help. So if you have Alzheimer's disease, if you do these positive or protective things, these brain health behaviours, we hope that your trajectory would be more stable. Anything that's good for your heart is good for your brain. And people should definitely take that piece of advice. We've moved that far now in the process, so really it's about the likes of at what stage would my dad have to go into a nursing home. It's difficult. I have determined that when he becomes a danger to himself or to others is the time. In the nursing home, they are better equipped, better trained, have more experience than, say, a family. We learn as we go along. But as long as I still get the recognition, we can deal with it. It's when he goes beyond that, when he no longer knows who I am or who his sister Rose is or who his daughters are. A nursing home is going to be a better quality of life for him because it won't be a new reality for him. Every five minutes, if he closes his eyes, it's a new reality. Then a nursing home, it wouldn't seem like a, a difficult decision to make for him. The problem I have is, even at that stage, to convince his sister, it's going to be a monumental task. I don't think there's any right or wrong way to go about it. I think people just need to do what's best for them. But that's one of the toughest questions, particularly if it's only one individual. Let's say it's a spousal caregiver. I think the family need to make a decision about when the time is right. And if the welfare of both individuals is worse at home, then I think it's probably a time to try and make the decision about when is appropriate to move to nursing home care. When you read some articles and they say, is it hereditary? And, oh, you think, you think. I don't know what the percentage is of getting it. So like the odds are probably being stacked, especially with, with somebody who has it in the family. Yeah, it is very psychologically difficult for people to deal with that. And I think it would be very unusual for somebody not to look at that situation and think, 
what if that's me, you know, in a couple of years time. It's not very likely. It's not a given that if your parents have dementia, that that's what will happen to you. So I think people need to be aware of the fact that there's not a strong likelihood of that happening. And I think Professor Lawler will be able to talk a little bit more about that, you know, the familial type of Alzheimer's. First of all, I don't think you should panic, you know, because vast majority are not highly genetic or what we call familial Alzheimer's disease. Age is the biggest risk factor. Family history can contribute, but it really only becomes significant as people go into their 70s, 80s and 90s. But I want to explain this more clearly. There are rare forms of Alzheimer's disease, for example, probably about 1%, that are highly genetic. This is rare. They're usually people who develop the condition in their 40s, early 50s. But there's usually three generations that are affected. So this is due to what we call a mutation, a gene defect that occurs. And in those families, rare, 1% or less than 1%, you know, 50% of each generation can be affected. But these are rare, rare situations. And these do not apply to 99% of people who might have a family history of Alzheimer's disease. We know that the amyloid deposition occurs decades before the person develops symptoms. So essentially you get the amyloid deposition first and then you get the damage to the synapses and the neurons. And then you get the symptoms. So there is a window probably somewhere between 10 to 20 years of this progressive deposition of the toxic amyloid before the person develops symptoms. So the idea is if you can get in early, you may be able to either slow or prevent or delay the okay. onset. The thinking is that it may be that the interventions are happening too late to try and clear out amyloid. So if you're really going to try and cure or disease modify this condition, you have to get in much, much earlier. So at the moment, there are a number of treatment trials looking at the amyloid busting drugs which are being used in these rare forms of Alzheimer's, these genetic forms. We know that these people who have the gene are going to get it. We know pretty much when they're going to get it and the idea is that they're getting these treatments early on before they get the actual condition to see if it can prevent the development of the condition. While the treatment trials have been negative so far, there is some hope that there could be new treatments on the horizon, but I guess we'll know something more about this in the next number of years. Would that give me a scintilla of hope for the future? Yeah. I'm all for research on it now. Like, I'll start taking the medication now. If they want the trial, you know, if they want the lab rat, oh yeah. Prevention is better than a cure. That's where my hope lies, in some form of treatment that will slow it down. I don't think there's anyone I haven't met who doesn't know somebody who has it. What we find is, you know, most people under 50 worry about developing cancer. People over 50 worry about developing dementia or Alzheimer's disease. So there is a big fear factor, but I think we have to unpack this fear and talk about, you know, what we might be able to do to potentially prevent dementia, treat dementia but also engage with people who have dementia and have a more inclusive society so that if you do develop dementia or if you're a family member of a person with dementia that you don't feel alienated or isolated or stigmatized or lonely. So the fear factor shouldn't be causing us to stick our head in the sand. We should be actually thinking more in a constructive or positive way about what we might be able to do. Get in contact with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. I have found them very experienced very unpushy but ready to help 
in any way they can. I, I just find it a good resource to call upon. My own sense would be, listen, accept it the same as if you said, no, I've got an awful cold today, I'm not up to it. I've got Alzheimer's, the memory is disappearing. Uh, I need help. My approach is, I live as long as I can, as freely as I can. And when I can't, I say thanks be to God for a good life. Life is here and now. This moment. The past has passed, the future hasn't come. Live this moment. Thanks to all our contributors for giving us their time and helping us to understand more of what it means to be affected by dementia. The Free Alzheimer's Cafe runs on the last Tuesday of every month between 7 and 9pm at Clareville Court, Glasnevin. For more information, contact Michelle on 01 The music in the programme has been courtesy of the Forget-Me-Nots Community Choir, another community initiative that helps those living with dementia. For more information about the choir, you can visit their webpage, forgetmenots.ie. Now it is time to say goodbye and we sign off with a poem by Owen Darnell. Do not ask me to remember. Do not ask me to remember. Don't try to make me understand. Let me rest and know you're with me. Kiss my cheek and hold my hand. I am confused beyond your concept. I am sad. I am sick and lost. All I know is that I need you to be with me at all costs. Do not lose your patience with me. Do not scold or curse or cry. I can't help the way I'm acting. Can't be different though I try. Just remember that I need you, that the best of me is gone. Please don't fail to stand beside me. Love Love me till till my my life life is is done. done. If you or somebody you know is worried about dementia, the HSE has set up a dedicated website with more information. Please visit www.understandtogether.ie This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland.